You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 128. On today's show, I chat with a lighting designer for themed attractions, Matt Cooper. We discuss fiduciaries, CPAs, and CFPs, his company, Spark Lighting, complications of long-term projects, the importance of understanding cash flow and tax efficiency, and following themed attraction projects from design to implementation. Also, for the first time in a while, we have outtakes. We went on some tangents that got a bit technical regarding lighting and networking of lighting and talking about real estate fitting into a retirement plan. So let's just say Matt has opinions about a podcast called Bigger Pockets. Now, if you want to hear those outtakes, you have to be a patron. So if you are, check out your private podcast feed. If you aren't, Join up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance to access those outtakes. Before we start the show, I have an exciting personal announcement to make, so if you want to skip straight to the interview, jump forward to minute eight. Now, most people know this, but if you're listening for the first time, I should let you know that our producer, Nicole, is also my spouse. Now, that's relevant for when I'm going to mention her name. Now, Nicole and I are expecting a baby, and specifically a baby boy with an estimated due date of April 11th, which is a short 12 weeks away. Now, we delayed the announcement as long as we could, so it might come as a bit of a shock that it's so soon. We are very excited, a little scared, but mostly thrilled. It's our first kid and probably our only kid, so we're really excited. So... Prepare for 2023 to be the year that this show is peppered with mentions of parenting, family planning, and me stopping interviews to go soothe a crying baby. Now, this show is not going to turn into how freelancers can raise a family, and that gets to the second part of the announcement. Our lease is up in the summer, and we're planning to leave the city. So I'm going to make a switch into academia and search for teaching jobs at universities, Nicole is going to work remotely at her current job, and so we have no location limits on where we can go other than we aren't fans of snow and ice, so hopefully we will find a temperate or warm climate. All this to say, if I find the right place, I'll be switching from freelancing to being W-2 employed. Sometimes when designers leave the city, they pretend like they still live there because there's some sort of street cred that comes along with being in a big city, but I am proudly moving out so that I can hustle a little bit less and focus on taking care of baby boy Stimel and also focusing on artistic finance. I'll certainly still design, I'll probably still travel to design, but I'm not looking to work nonstop hours because I'd love to spend some time with the family. Okay, that's it for the big announcement, but It curtails into a secondary announcement, and that's the topic of guest hosts. I started looking at my April work schedule, and I panicked. I'm going to be designing shows at Pace University and for the J2 Spotlight Company, but working and having a baby and publishing artistic finance is just not possible. And I'd love to take time off work, but work pays money. Artistic finance, while there is a Patreon page, doesn't generate income, and it takes a lot of time. 25 plus hours per episode. So the obvious solution is to take artistic finance on hiatus, which in the podcast world means goodbye forever. However, our previous guest, Carl Faber, who is a father himself of two young kids, one of whom is only nine months. But when Carl found out we were expecting a baby, he said, if there's any way I can help with the podcast in April, let me know. Because of how much time and energy go into creating the show, it had never occurred to me that I could ask for help. But when Carl volunteered, it got my brain turning that I could ask other people to take the reins while I step away. Now, I'm not stepping away entirely. I'm still going to need to do a lot of back-end work to make the show happen, especially for guest hosts who don't know how to edit or don't know technology. But when I started asking around, I got a lot of people who were willing to step in and keep the show on the air. I mentioned a couple of those last week's, but we have some new episodes in the works. Set designer John Lee Beatty is going to interview some colleagues about being a paint charge for film and also film production. Actor and director John Lampy is working on an episode about mortgages. And the Light Talk podcast hasn't responded to me, so if anybody has influence over the Lumen brothers, sisters, or siblings, 
convinced them to do a guest host episode for us. And speaking of light talk, I'm in competition with them to get more Apple podcast reviews. So if you use Apple products, which I know our guest today does. So Matt, if you listen to this, this is for you too. Please find the Artistic Finance Podcast and leave a rating and review. As of this recording, they have 43 reviews. Artistic Finance has 41. So two people could help tie me. Also, one other little thing. They don't know we're having this competition, so nobody tipped them off. But anyway, about guest hosts. If you are listening and you want to lend a hand, please get in touch. Or if you have access to some capital to sponsor an episode, let me know. Part of the reason I haven't done this before is the cost of hiring editors and project managers, but now the baby boy is on his way, it's forcing me to get some help. And the last thing before we get started is about the overwhelming support that I've seen since I've started gathering guest hosts. So first off, Carl, but secondarily, Peter Kazarowski. While he's not into podcasting, he offered for my shows in April to step in when I need to step away for the baby. Now that may not sound significant, but I assure you that is one of the kindest things that anyone has ever offered. In my wildest dreams, I never saw that coming. All this to say this year is having me see more goodwill from people in the industry than I have ever seen before. Frankly, it's a bit overwhelming. All right, that's the update on my life and for artistic finance in 2023. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome lighting designer. Is that right? Sure. Or, okay, multifaceted artist, (laughs) (laughs) Matt Cooper, to the show. Now, we're recording this on January 9th, 2023, and it being early January, that is Broadway closing season. So Matt is here in New York. Um, So all the shows that are closing, holiday shows, obviously the one-person Christmas Carol closed on January 1st, but just yesterday was the final shows of Beetlejuice, Into the Woods, 1776, Almost Famous, and Stomp, which ran for 30 years off-Broadway. And that's only significant to entertainment workers or lighting people, etc., because it went so long that was a steady job that a lot of people started when they came to New York or stuff like that. So I think a lot of people have connections to that show, even though it sort of just closed without fanfare. I think I saw it when I was like nine years old. Yeah, yeah, like the touring version. That's really sad at close, though. Yeah. Um, and then in December, we had the sudden upset clothing, closings of Ain't No Mo. Uh, I don't know if you say it like that, but it sounded weird. Um, and K-pop, which only had 17 performances. And I think they're still releasing a cast album on February 24th, but TBD. Um, and then eking out one more week before they close is The Music Man, Death of a Salesman, Top Dog Underdog, A Strange Loop, and Mike Birbiglia. So all that to say, there's then like five more shows that are closing end of January and February, which means that over half of the Broadway theaters are turning over a show in like this month, which is just sort of amazing to me. Like there's only 41 and half of them are turning over. So anyway, did you see any of those shows that are now closed? Uh, I did. We snuck in to see Into the Woods on Saturday. So day before closing. Uh, It was great. It was it was really fun. Seats were actually fairly easy to snag. And uh, yeah, cat performances were great. So I'm glad we got to see that one. It would have been it would have been sad to not catch that before it closed up. Yep. All right. So enough about Broadway because I'm not working on Broadway. You're not working on Broadway. So who cares is what <laughs> <Right>. I say. <laughs> um, so let's go to our guest here, Matt Cooper, the owner of Spark Lighting, based in Kentucky. Yep. Uh, Matt. So for people who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Spark? Sure. Um, so I probably a little over a decade ago, meandered my way into this weird category of themed entertainment or location-based entertainment. So um, theme parks, family entertainment centers like Chuck E. Cheese would be kind of the stereotypical example. They all would fit within this industry. Um, There's a trade organization that's um, really like 30,000 people or so will attend their uh, international conference. So um, I, I, kind of accidentally found a project there and it was a really interesting intersection of um, kind of the creative disciplines that we would know from theater world 
but applied in like installed projects. So the analogy would be if you can imagine designing a Broadway show and thinking about it might have a uh, like stomp might have a 30 year run. We're doing theater. Now you might be riding on a ride vehicle moving at six feet a second, but <laughs> we're doing theater and there it's in a permanent install that might run for 30 years or we've done a lot of work here recently that's kind of like seasonal overlays. So take a take an, an outdoor area of a theme park and apply um, some sort of seasonal attraction. And very much like theater, it's a mixture of scenic and lighting. And those are still um, very respected disciplines that are expected to collaborate and work together with a creative director to form uh, an experience for a guest. So I like accidentally found myself in this industry and I've kind of fallen in love. Um, it feels like it's where a lot of the high school theater kids, which I was one of, um, it feels like that's where a lot of those folks ended up to go do work. Um, so yeah, we, uh, I started working on my own and was doing, I was originally doing just design. I was real fearful. I'd worked for, a, an AVL install, uh, company before. So, um, you know, audio, video lighting, mainly house of worship focused, um, and that, that was a neat experience, but I, I kind of saw the install side of that. I, I was real nervous about getting into implementing design early on. And then that more and more became apparent that the clients that I, I was working with would would value that that service and would value the kind of like turnkey approach to a project. So we started venturing that way several years ago, and it's been really successful. Um, so to see a project from design concept um, all the way through programming and procuring equipment and installing the equipment. Um, and so last year I found myself with probably more work than anybody should be doing. I was, I was getting to know like certain airport bars and certain sky clubs, like on a first name basis. And that felt a little dangerous to my personal life. So, uh, I started down this road of, well, what would it look like to build a team to go take on more and more projects. And um, yeah, just kind of fell in love with this little pocket of theater folks doing theme parks. So that's yeah, been really fun. Amazing, amazing. Okay, I wanna, I wanna delve into that, but a couple icebreaker sure, questions yeah. first, which is what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Uh, well, so I'm in New York. It's kind of obvious theater's great yeah. from doing theater in high school. That that was like that's kind of where I guess I fell in love with lighting yeah. and the like it's the combination of there's this architectural element and then there's this like visual art component and then you have to understand like narrative and story and it was this intersection of all these things that I loved. So theater is still really special to me. Um, so yeah, we're actually in New my wife Ashley and I are in New York this week. Ashley's Just, here, by the way, off camera. But hi, Ashley. In the background, <laughs> um, we decided when I was in the middle of uh, I was sitting at a Hampton Inn in Branson, Missouri, in between some projects, pretty tired and needed kind of a light at the end of the tunnel to look forward to. And so we said, let's go to New York and uh, we'll check out a few shows. So I love to see. There's nothing that beats the like a live performance in a room. With all with scenic with lighting with all those disciplines combined, so that's okay. a great one. All right, now your financial personality: Are you good or bad with money? I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> I I think and there's something about this podcast too that's really exciting to me because as much as I love the like the the art and the part of lighting, the the kind of money or business side of things is equally interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like started practicing writing business plans when I was in high school. There was something, there's some connection there. Like it is a little bit like storytelling. Yeah. I think especially when you're trying to raise money, which I've never done before and hope I don't ever have to do, but mm-hmm. it does feel like, you know, it's like a good attorney. Like you're really telling a story and you're trying to like make certain pieces fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of the way we do with, you know, I don't have all the gear I need in the rig, so I'm going to bend some rules. And yeah, kind of there's an analogy there, I think. All right. Yeah, you probably won't have to do that until like 30 years from now you're trying to sell spark lighting. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Out, we'll, okay, go through a, we'll go through a couple rounds of fun. Yeah, no big yeah. deal. Um, okay, so now let's talk about um, spark. So I'm a lighting designer and I just go show to show. I design it, move on. But you, spark is a little bit more involved with that. So like what do you actually do? And, and also... I don't, I've never designed attractions. So I know you said like roller coaster, blah, blah, blah. Do you do like the shows at these parks or are you doing the roller coaster part? <laughs> yeah. So there, there are a lot of people who do shows at parks. That's not typically what we've been involved in. So we're more in, in our focus and kind of desires to do more like 
permanent attractions. The work that we do is very similar to what you would do for a show. So there's a creative director, think like director in terms of Broadway, ultimate creative champion overseeing the work of, of all folks involved. There is a scenic design of sorts that happens. Most of these these projects are furnished with capital investment. So the themed attractions industry, in order to make a few dollars selling you an ice cream cone, mm-hmm. they will reinvest funds uh, into capital projects. So they'll build a new roller coaster so that they can make uh, revenue on the ice cream cone. So we wherever there is a capital project and it has a lighting need, when those two intersect, that creates an opportunity for us. We'll get involved. A lot of these projects have a long track too. So it could be a, a, a one, two, or even a three-year development process. There's some degree of budget that we have to work within. There's some narrative that, you know, it's very much like a show. So a queue line, the experience that you have as you're waiting for the attraction, whether it's a roller coaster or a dark ride, or that often is, is very recently has been very, very narrative driven. So it's almost like you're walking through a series of show sets and each component tells a different uh, element of the story. So there's a need for lighting there. It's an interesting blend of like architectural lighting too, because there's the need you need general illumination so you can see to walk and there's some safety requirements there. So we'll have to meet those, try to add some like storytelling, a little bit of drama along the way. And then, yeah, in the case of like a roller coaster, we might like the structure because that, that becomes part of the Vista or there's certain kind of sight lines within the park where they'll leverage a lighting package on a roller coaster for, to give the park a particular flavor at a season. Mm -hmm. We've done some things with, uh, like a seasonal overlay. There was a, a project a few years ago intended to create an attraction within an existing park for the fall. And so there were these show sets that were designed to look like massive pumpkins. So, uh, you know, a creature made out of a series of pumpkins or a spider uh, made out of pumpkins. And so we came up with a strategy to light those sets and then to light the general kind of footprint of that area mm-hmm. very creatively, a lot of you know saturated color and bold choices. So that created this overused term, immersive experience for guests. That creates a draw for those um, operators to have their season pass holders. So they're kind of VIPs that will repeat and attend through the year. It's a reason for them to show up at a particular season. It also creates a draw for someone who might come once or twice a year. They'll go just to see that one experience. You know, we're doing plots, we're doing bill materials and equipment lists, and then we're a little unique. Most of the rest of our industry, they'll do a design, they'll ship the design off, bid the equipment, and then a different entity will do installation and programming, we're soup to nuts. We'll take the thing from original concept all the way to opening night and then support it afterwards. We're doing a lot of programming, particularly in Pharos, which is a an architectural controller that was designed in the UK Carlon. So the guys who maintain the database of all the moving light personalities and stuff that I think every console manufacturer subscribes to, those guys built an architectural controller. And it's, it's kind of timeline-based programming, but then it has this robust set of triggers so time of day or contact closure inputs or osc time code all that so it's all of the programming tools to automate different than the way we would with a button push on a console so we do a lot of work in pharos and it's distributed in the states by etc the product's called mosaic Um, so it's it's kind of like the de facto um, if you're doing uh, a facade of a building a bridge um, or anyone in, th- in theme park world, that's really the workhorse. That's the that's the grand MA uh, of programming. Talking about Spark, you said that like a year, year and a half ago is when you started building a team. So how does it actually work when a project comes into you? Uh, say it's some client you've been doing, you know, for a while and they say, okay, we have this new queue that we need lit and blah, blah, blah. How does it work project wise from them asking you to then it being implemented? And how, do, how does the team work into that? Like, how are you incorporating, you know, hiring other people to help? When you figure out the team thing, let me know. And then okay. I'll, take, I'll take notes. <laughs> well, so when it was, and it was just me, I, I was, it was hard to do a lot of the implementation work. Just it's the limits of time. So it was mainly design work. So it was figuring out the right, um, how to, uh, the right set of tools that would fit within the budget. And then it's a lot of basic, you know, McCandless theory is McCandless theory. It, it was, a, it's a lot of the same um, techniques that we would use in theater. It's just implying them in really weird environments. And sometimes uh, with a lot of water, you know, with a lot right, of, right. with a lot of outdoor requirement. Um, so it, it works very much the way you would in theater. We work within the concept. I usually try to figure out um, kind of run through in my head, 
the equi- the major equipment we're going to need, about how much is that going to cost? Okay, are we at all close to budget? Kind of make sure that we don't promise more than we can deliver in terms of... That's very important. You're just, you just glossed over that, but that is so important because I'm going to do a show coming up in a couple months and somebody said, okay, so we've done the show before, the last person over-promised and under-delivered. And we don't need much. So just don't say that you're going to do X, Y, Z if we don't have the time and the resources. It, so it's I guess important. It's, <laughs> I guess it's a lighting designer thing. And I've just never been able to work in an environment where I wasn't asked what the budget was. Oh, if only I could pick every piece of gear that I really love and would right. do the best job. Yeah. So budget is always the constraint. We try to make sure, and, and maybe if there's something that we do that's unique, it's making sure we're on uh, we're within a client's budget because that I think that drives most of delivering on the expectation thing. Sure, I can light something with a bunch of vipers and it'll look amazing. And but if you can't afford that, then we probably shouldn't have that conversation because you're just going to be mad in the end. I get mad too when people ask me like, "Oh, what do you need?" And I say, "This is what I need." Yeah. And then they say, "Well, we have like a quarter of that for the budget." And I'm like, right. "Why did you ask yeah, me? Yeah, Why yeah, did you ask me?" Yeah, par fifty six it is. Yeah, we uh, try to budget check real quick. That's important to do real early on. Then we'll move into. We get some degree of background drawing, so it may be, you know, if it's a structure, it may be a, a set of architectural drawings, and we may be doing some of the general illumination, so some downlights, some emergency lighting, some of that kind of stuff, and then the more theatrical or, you know, like things for dramatic effect. So figure out the gear list. We'll go through a design process. We'll report, we'll um, kind of output that back as a series of drawings and a budget. Um, that will get massaged a little bit. And depending on the length of the project, that could be a pretty lengthy revision process. Yeah. And then we'll ultimately boil that down to, here's the official equipment list. We'll go procure that. We'll prep that at our office. We'll send it out to a project site. So we just had a project actually in Branson. My favorite, my favorite. <laughs> well, there's so much to connect on about Branson. <laughs> this project was a lot of fixtures in a pretty big area, and it was all outdoor. We took all the gear, brought the gear into Kentucky to our office, prepped everything. So same way you would prep for a theater show, I guess, like, you know, addressing accessories, got everything together. And we actually carted all the gear out on a truck in collapsible shipping crates, palletized shipping crates. And so when we got onto the property, we were able to take a forklift and move a crate per each area that had all the gear and all the cable and all the control equipment. So it sped up the way we could deploy the project. Gear gets out in place. Our, our team deploys that gear, hooks everything, does a rough focus, control system drops in. And then usually me, I'm out to do kind of final programming. And just like a good theater show, you should probably be 75% of the way done. Uh, if you know the real time constraints you're working within before you even show up. And I'm like, I'm continually surprised at the the expectation of, of the other folks involved kind of in the creative process, how quickly they expect our discipline to work. Like, as you know, it's hard to light a set until the set's in place. <laughs> Which means that we're kind of like the la- like pigeonhole me in for like twelve hours before opening. It's so hard to do any work until the very end, but then that timeline always compresses. My mentor told me a long time ago, like you'll never be done; you'll just run out of time. Never is that more true in the work that we exactly. Do. Oh my gosh! Well, somebody sent me. I'm going to go do the wedding singer at the Gateway Playhouse in three weeks, and somebody sent me a video of the 2008 version that they did. It's same director, same everything, same set. Um, I'm new. I was like oh, I have a video and this is what we're doing. Like I can actually create the cue list before the design yeah. run. Like yeah. I can actually, and like, yes, once I get into the theater, I will be like, okay, this light I was going to use is behind a wall or something. Like there's going right. to be that. Right. But I'm like, just having the video is like so many, like I can get some work done ahead of time. And I'm like. <laughs> so interestingly, I, I programmed a show. It was the last show we did last year. And I programmed that at the Sky Lounge at the Atlanta airport, <laughs> watching an iPhone video of their rehearsal. Yes. And and you know what? It was it was about eighty percent. Like it was there were some tweaks, but yes. it was in the ballpark, and it probably saved a day of time yeah. on the project site. So yeah, same 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 trick. It works. So you get it in, you make a plot, you know, design it, implement it all the way. At what point does budget work? Because I know like in theater, it's like. It tends to be, okay, we're hiring you. You get a third of your pay when you sign. You get a third of it when your plot's due, and you get a third of it at opening. Um, but you're doing things that are extended over periods of time. So do they come to you, say, like, is there a consultation fee that you're paying, or are they bidding it, or, like, how, how, do, you, how do you get paid? <laughs> so I'd say we've been fortunate that rarely are we in a bid situation. Although 
that's not scary. I mean, I, I, no, that's not a problem. You wouldn't do anything differently. Yeah. Um, I think there's a degree of demonstrate that we're the right choice to create value and to deliver for the project. And, uh, you know, if that's existing relationship with a client or our history or a portfolio, that oftentimes kind of qualifies us to be in the conversation. Um, we can demonstrate some conceptual renders or do a quick pass at a budget to help someone know that we're the right fit. That's totally fine. Um, and yeah, payment structure tends to be, it's project milestone. So um, it'll generally flow. There's, you know, some exchange of money at the design phase at completion of design or acceptance of the design. There's probably another kind of exchange. And then once procurement happens, Again, that's kind of unique to us in that we're, we're going the full distance. Um, the client would then send us another round of payment to trigger procurement and then something when we're done at the project. So, yeah, it's if we're doing just the design, it's probably a lot more something to get started and then something at the close of the design process. So I would say probably 75% of what we do, it's capital purchases. So the hardware is a purchase and it's probably a permanent installation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably a quarter of the work we do where it, if it's a four week run, it's, you know, it's going to be rental gear. Um, and just logistically, did they pay you and you go buy the gear? Did they pay spark lighting or do you say, here's the list, you know, order it directly from EDC. Yeah. So or- we, we like to furnish the gear. So we're branding. We're, you like to put spark. Lighting yes, the, we like branding. <laughs> like, I thought this was an ETC project what, or product. Why is it? Why is I'm there sometimes accused logo? of double branding in some of the videos <laughs> on the internet. I apologize. Everybody can go if you want to watch this video on YouTube. We'll have Spark Lighting logo right over both superimposed of our faces. over both of our like, faces. It'll just be too. I would Spark expect nothing less. <laughs> um, yeah, I would. Uh, we like to be the dealer of record. Um, so we we have dealer relationships with um, several different vendors. Um, so we can, one, we can furnish the the hardware package at a competitive price to our client. And there's some benefit because of that service and support category, which probably isn't something you would run into in theater a ton. Um, a permanent install that might operate for, you know, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, there's an element of support that's required. Um, and so... As if we're the dealer of record, it makes working through any warranty issues a lot easier. And it's it's part of that kind of turnkey philosophy. Um, not everybody in themed attraction follows that strategy. We we think it creates the best value for our clients, mm-hmm. which is which is why we want to offer that service. And honestly, like the growth of our team is really driven by the need to support that part of a project. Um, there's plenty of design bandwidth to go around. It's the implementation and the support afterwards that really right. demands a team. So, yeah. yeah. So just out of curiosity, what's the longest project that you're like still maintaining? We have a project for Dollywood, which is a theme park in Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. They've been operating an outdoor seasonal overlay. I think 2015 was the initial installation. <clears throat> so it's been operating since. Um, they they're, have a pretty elaborate um, and really competent uh, team at the property. They're large enough that they can support their own projects and like seasonal stuff yeah. with their staff. So they maintain that, um, that package, but yeah, we, we designed it in, or I designed it in 15. So it's, it's still going. And then you also talked about dealer relationships. Mm-hmm. So you can be the dealer of record. Um, cause like if I go online to order, uh, some piece of lighting or something, I can get it from super bright LEDs. I can get it from lightingsuperstore.com I can get it and like each one just has like a different markup or like it tends to be mostly the same price so is that what you mean by dealer relationships like you can wholesale the gear from like ETC or yeah so uh, Chevet Elation are both we're dealers for both of those guys so um, if we need their hardware we can supply that hardware to to the end user and we're the dealer of record which means Chevet will stand behind that warranty. Our relationship with those guys becomes really important. And especially during COVID, I think we really learned that those relationships, not only to know what gear was available or to be able to work around uh, uh, availability issues um, becomes really valuable. And honestly, I think that's part of the value we create for a project is that we we can leverage those relationships to get what our client needs, either if it's a shoot, super short timeline or if there's a particular price point that we're trying to hit, that network of relationships is kind of part of our value proposition. Um, and the, 
I think in COVID too, we also learned like there was a chip. I think it's the same chip that's involved in all the automotive stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing that does the, the like the SACN or the ArtNet node. So availability of that product got really squirrely, and we still had projects to do. So that that put an even greater emphasis on we stock some of that equipment in our office for the support side of things. Yeah. It's it's really emphasized how critical it is that we have that on hand because if if there's Global supply chain is still a little bit disrupted. And if there's an availability issue, I don't want that to threaten our ability to deliver a project. So having that kind of an inventory, knowing that we can kick it out the door real quick if we need to, has become really valuable. To be a dealer, is that because you have spark lighting an entity? Or could I also be a dealer for somebody just on my own? So we're formed as an LLC, which is which is definitely important. Um, some of that background I had in the kind of installed AV world mm-hmm. was helped me understand how those relationships work and how that process works. Um, most of the dealer arrangements are restricted. There's a only a certain number of people who can gain a dealership in a particular territory. Right. So um, that the the manufacturers want to ensure that there's um, there's generally some minimums you have to meet. They want to make sure that you know people are doing quality work and represent the brand well. And um, so, yeah, it takes a little bit of effort to get there. Um, we've been thankful that that some of those relationships that either I have or folks on my team have from um, from from the past with um, some of the regional reps or, or, or whatever they're representing the product, we've been able to, you know, to talk to those folks and we're a known commodity. So they were willing to um, to turn Sparklight on as a dealer. Um, but yeah, now it's become really integral to our process. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was just doing design work, uh, it, it didn't matter as much, but now that we really think our, the value we create is this turnkey, you know, let's take the concept and guarantee the client's, um, satisfaction at the end. It's really important that we have those relationships and that we can get access to the equipment. We know what's coming out. We know what's available. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it takes a little bit of effort these days, but, um, we've got like the, the relationships we have there on the, on the product side, there's some really great people who work really hard to help us deliver our projects. And yeah, they're, they're just as important as the client relationships. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. Now our newest patron, Philip Lupo sent me an incredible message this week. I didn't ask him if I could read it, but I'm going to. So he said, I've been listening to the podcast since its inception, and it's been so great to watch the show, the community, and you grow. The conversations have become more interesting, more substantial, and have become one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, as opposed to ones I've included in my feed because I feel like I should. As I started closing my 2022 books, my mind immediately went to, I've got to contribute to artistic finance somehow. And I've always been very into finances and the logistics of running this lighting design business. So in a way, Artistic Finance is the podcast I've always dreamed of starting. And that's why I became a patron. So Philip, that message made my day. And it's comments like that, that I started noticing last year, specifically after the LDI conference. And that's when I realized that the two and a half years of putting out a new interview each week and talking about finances for workers in the entertainment industry is serving a purpose and it is impacting our community for the better. It's the moments when people say I've been listening for a long time that really get me because I've never met Philip and I had no idea that he was listening to the show. For him to send that message and not just say this week's show was really great but to say I've been listening this whole time it really means a lot. Other listeners have sent very nice messages that I haven't necessarily talked about on the show But if you have sent me one, just know that I really appreciate it. So there you have it, kids, words matter. And being a patron also matters. But of course, just like tipping a barista or tithing at church, it's not required. I'm thrilled that you're here no matter what. I got a little sidetracked there, but what I wanted to say was that if you want to become a patron, please sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now... Back to the show. And also, you're based in Kentucky. What city? 
Lexington. Lexington. The great Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah, bourbon and horses are our two <laughs> best. Yes. And basketball. Like but you do a lot of your work in Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, and Branson. Are those like your main hubs? Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of themed attraction in Orlando. So we occasionally do some work in Orlando, but the regional attractions, which are kind of think about it like off Broadway. So if we have Broadway is, is the Disney's and the universals of the world, those ecosystems are uh, designers have very specific roles and responsibilities. And a lot of their projects are developed internally. We've been really successful in kind of the regional tier of attractions which Branson has a number of those. Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge have some. They're, they're kind of hubs in the country of these regional properties. They tend to do better, actually, in economic downturns. Mm-hmm. So the, the destination-based experiences are more, more susceptible to the ups and downs in the economy, whereas the regional attractions tend to be a little more consistent. Those properties are looking for a different value proposition. They're looking for a scrappiness. So can you apply, can you do great work with a limited budget. And that's, I think, where we've been successful. That's part of that like turnkey philosophy that creates more value. So that's kind of been our, our niche. So our niche of a niche of a niche has been in, in working for regional properties. It keeps the work challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never had the blank slate of pick every fixture of your dreams. And, right, right. you know, we're never going to say the B word. And it's <laughs> it always starts with a budget conversation. Some of the clients where I think the projects I've had the most fun doing and some of the relationships with our clients that have been the best have really been formed on a project that has a very tight budget and has to happen really quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's scary to a lot of other folks, yeah. but that feels very comfortable for us. I think yeah. we're confident we can create value in that with those kind of constraints. Well, I would say the very quickly thing is very important. That oftentimes is the value of a designer or a design firm or anything is like, how quickly can you do this? Because it's like when something needs to happen, the person that can make it happen is like who you need. Right, <laughs> right. In the in the 30 years of practice, you know, like one of the things I'm, I'm so struck by when I go see a show on Broadway is you're, you're seeing somebody's work after 20 or 30 years of practice or practice on other Broadway shows. And so the... The ability to do something fast and also good is predicated on the 30 years that I spent learning how to, to work that quickly. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it you can't, I don't think you can deliver in that environment without the experience. Yeah. Um, and if you have all the budget, well, that's not any fun. Like, where's the challenge? So, All right. I have another, another question about you building a team. Spark lighting, do you pay people on 1099s? Do you pay them on W-2s? How, do, how does that infrastructure so, of your business work? Yeah, currently it's a combination of both. So I, when I started, I formed an LLC. I there's a, there's a value in working under an LLC because as an owner or as a technically a member of the LLC, I can pay myself a W-2 salary and then I can also pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Dividends aren't subject to FICA. The, the net net, you can pass compensation to yourself with a slightly lower, you save a little bit in, in tax efficiency. So uh, when we first started out doing the projects, my challenge is I, I don't need two people for four months. I need 20 people for a week. Mm-hmm. And so to get that kind of scalable labor force, it, it really becomes a 1099 thing. We've got a great network of folks that we use to deploy projects that work with us, know the way we like to operate, kind of know how our projects function. <clears throat> so we hire those guys as 1099. As the opportunity to grow the team kind of came about, or the, the decision to grow the team, we've started bringing people on board as W-2. We still have some, um, like I have a great kind of finance admin. She works for us 1099. So uh, I used to do all the invoicing and all the transaction logging, and she thankfully does that now. And it's taken that off my plate, and she's much better at it. But we have the scalable labor, I think, has been is the strategy for us to grow. We're, we're bootstrapping the whole thing. So there's no outside money. It's just us. Um, so in order to keep running the organization really lean and efficient, I don't need 40 hours a week of accountant. I need like 15. Yeah. And so it's been easy. We can access that through 1099 a lot easier yeah. than we can a W-2. But yeah, we're adding W-2 people onto the team. Got it. Yeah, we did. I did an episode that was like pay on 1099 or W-2. And sort of the answer I got was, doesn't really matter, but if you're going to do W two, you just get the software. So logistically, how do you pay yeah, W two? So there's a great service called Gusto, G U S T O. So we use that for it's a um, turnkey or uh, sorry, full service payroll. Um, so big difference in 
a payroll service and full service payroll. Full service, um, and not everybody offers it in every state, but um, we onboard people through their platform. We pay through their platform, and it's a it's a deduction out of our um, our checking account. And Gusto calculates and then withholds. Um, and then pays on our behalf all the, the payroll tax. So the interesting thing that I didn't know about until I got into the weeds. So you would think payroll taxes like, oh, everything's due on the first of the month. But there, there are many different entities that are involved and expect to get paid. And they all have different payment schedules. They all take different forms of payment. So all of those, you know, the little single lines, the school systems, this, the, the local taxes, this, the state tax, their due dates and um, are all varied. So the platform, Gusto takes care of all of that. So we don't even have to um, think like, oh, my um, city tax bill is due on the third of the month, but um, Kentucky state tax is due quarterly. It's they they withhold all the funds and that's part of the, the their service fee. Yeah. I know you have this business, but I still look at you in a way as a freelancer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It, and it, it, it's very similar. Yeah. But I guess we'll say business owner. Do you have a retirement plan? So I do. Our, our retirement strategy, um, so we're funding an SEP IRA mm-hmm. from the LLC. We try to max that out every year. Um, the, um, the amount that we can contribute, that max contribution, is defined by um, how much compensation that I get paid. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in the process of growing a team, and, and there's kind of a strategic decision, um, and I kind of made a decision to pay myself less so that I could keep the majority of the cash flow to go grow the team. Yep. Now, hopefully, the, the you know, we play our cards the right way. That changes over time. Yeah. But that that limits to a large degree how much we can contribute to that. Um, we also, um, Ashley, my wife, and I have we're, we're doing some real estate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're fortunate to live in a real estate market that is really stable and pretty accessible in terms of capital. So the combination of those two things, um, you know, tax deferred savings through the SC, the SEP IRA, and um, um, what will ultimately be pre-tax money for, or uh, sorry, post-tax money for us, um, we're we're kind of in acquisition mode on properties, mm-hmm. yeah. and we're using some leverage to get there. Yep. The goal is that we're kind of in this sweet spot where I'm in a spot in my career where, where there's enough income, there's enough capital to do some of that investing, yeah. but we still have enough runway till retirement that we can pay off those properties and then um, see their cat. We're, we're not really realizing any cash flow or right. we're not, we're not seeing any return in terms of cash um, now, but in let's say 20 years when we're looking at retirement, we've got a built in kind of income stream. Yeah. So yeah. I, I see that as that's kind of like my, my air quote pension. Yeah. Um, and I know you talked about, I don't know, FINRA or whatever, where you can save a little bit on the taxes. Oh, FICA. FICA. Yeah. Yeah, FICA. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, is that Social Security? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah. Yes. So I guess, are you still paying into Social Security? Yes. Yeah. yeah so it. I'm yeah. a W 2. Because uh, I get paid as a W-2 employee, but then I get this dividend thing. Yeah. Um, W-2 means I'm paying into all the local and city tax and paying into Social Security. Um, uh, there's there's some savviness to if you're going to pay yourself X dollars in a year as, the, as a member of an LLC, how much you balance between W-2 salary and dividend. Mm-hmm. Um, my CPA would, would say that a reasonable salary. Now you tell me what reasonable is, <laughs> but a reasonable salary and then probably a smaller portion through the dividend. Mm-hmm. And the combination of those two, you, you save a little bit because you're not paying the, the uh, you're not exposed to FICA on the dividend. Got it. But yeah. W-2 is just like a normal W-2 job, whether it was my company or anyone else's company. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it seems like you're good on a good trajectory because it's like you're still paying into Social Security, so you'll have that. Um and then you have the SEP IRA, which you're saying is limited now, but hopefully that'll... Yeah, I think, and I think that's a temporary thing. Um, so I, I have parents which who are um, getting older. And in the last several years, I've kind of stepped in to, to help with some of their financial yeah. landscape. Um, and it's been really interesting because I've learned some things. They're, they're at retirement and like retirement plus kind of health concerns. Yeah. And... It's almost like I'm getting a fast forward 25 or 30 years 
So as I'm as I'm learning these things and, and trying to figure these things out on their behalf, I'm kind of taking notes like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and, and so I one of the things that I did uh, discovered pretty early. Um, I had a great CPA who I've worked with and businesses that I've had and just personal tax returns. And um, she opened up or or was part of opening a financial planning firm mm. um, with this idea that that all the services were integrated. Yeah. Um, and that has been really invaluable for I, I moved my 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 folks accounts there and then our accounts. But having a CPA and a CFP and, and actually in some cases a, an estate planning attorney, yeah. having them all in the same room. I assumed because of probably the collaboration of theater that everybody like talk to each other and would collaborate. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of learned the hard way when I first got involved with my parents picture that that wasn't the case. Yeah. And like there were some really expensive um, investment decisions, expensive because they're tax consequence. Yeah. And it was like, well, why, why are you guys not talking? Yeah. So getting involved with, or, or getting a relationship with a firm um, they're a fiduciary, so they have a legal obligation to yeah. to recommend what is in our best interest, and and have literally having everybody sitting at a table um, has made I, I think it's been a key for us making really good decisions for the business yeah. and for our personal investing, and then in the case of my parents, like tax efficiency. Now that they're using some of that savings to support their in, support their living expenses. Um, it's been a really interesting learning. Right. Um, yeah. And it, like, I think the conventional recommendation for people our age is, you know, tax deferred savings, tax deferred savings. And that's great. But part of our recent, like, emphasis on real estate has been, like, I've, I've watched the the logic of the tax deferred savings thing. Mm-hmm. It's great until you actually really need to use the money. The money. Yeah. And then you've got it, like, RMDs and it's a whole thing. So, that really put a, I think, fast tracked the importance of having a, some sort of you know pension, whatever cash flow, like cash stream available to us in retirement mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with our tax deferred savings. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I've been fortunate to like learn some lessons through the lens of my parents yeah. um, before we get to that stage of life. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I actually think that's great, and I'm always saying, open up a Roth IRA. Like, if you don't know anything about finance, step yeah, one, I think a Roth, Roths are great. Yeah. Step one, open it up. But I also say that, like, just opening up an investment account, like, don't worry about the tax, con- like, don't go for the tax savings. Like, if you don't need to open a 529 plan for your kid, don't do it because you're just, you're just opening the door to headaches when right. you'd probably be right. better just opening up a savings account or an investment account that, yes, you won't get the tax benefits, but frankly, like, it's going to be easier for you in the long run when you, maybe when you do figure things it's, out. It's almost like the headline is, it's actually simpler than you think it is. Yeah. Like, if the, if the strategy is too complex... Like, sure, there's the one or two percent of people in the world who need a really complex strategy. Right. But I think for most of us, it's actually pretty simple. Yeah. And if it gets complicated, that or if you don't really understand what the investment is, that's probably a warning sign. It's probably not a good investment. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm talking to you, too, because I'm working on a estate planning episode. And oh, like, cool. Part, part of me is like, oh, do I really need this? Because... Like, do you have to have a lot of money? That's one of my questions. Like, do you have to have a lot of money to plan your estate? Um, but I do think it's important what you're saying about everybody talking to one another. Because just because you have a CPA, one doesn't mean you're talking to your CPA. Right. I know, I know Nicole and I don't talk to ours. And then we, you know, we'll go four years and then we're like, we should have talked to you four years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and also our financial planner, they'll, they'll recommend a estate planning attorney or somebody to do the wills, but they don't actually talk to them. Like, so it's all on us to like make sure everyone's... If, or we know what our plan is. If there's any decision I think I've made, and I I, I think I just kind of lucked into it because of relationship, but if there's any critical decision I think I made, it was picking a firm where all of that, like their philosophy, um, their, their foundation is built on this principle that everybody's going to talk together because they, um, in their CPA practice, they saw so much tax inefficiency mm-hmm. in what other advisors were recommending. And um, my CPA is also a CFP. And so there was always like an informal kind of coaching. But to formalize that and have that all be the same team, um, it's probably one of my favorite meetings to do every year. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, like a quarterly meeting because you get everybody at the same table. And it's like, well, how much how much should we contribute? And, well, you know, somebody's crunching numbers over here. Like it's um, that exchange of information. And at, at the tie to theater, like 
when you're in a really good project and there's really good collaboration, there's just kind of you you have a sense of oh this is like all the buzz is productive. Yeah. And I think the same thing exists in in that financial roundtable. Well, you're reminding me that Nicole and I, when we got our financial planner, we were actually looking for a CPA. And so it was all together in one house. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that company broke apart. And now they've then since broken apart again. To like, So we're on the third company. But I now realize that what was all in-house is now not. And so like for five years, we've been... So now you're reminding me, like, this is a good point to make for people if they're looking for a financial planner is... Maybe look for one that's connected to an accountant because those two talking. Yeah, and, and that and the fiduciary obligation, which, um, which I did is not. Mostly people now, most people are fiduciary. Right. I, I did not understand uh, until I, I saw through the lens of some things that were going on in my parents' world, like what the uh, absence of a fiduciary was yep. and how quickly. Um, no one can predict the future. And a Monte Carlo simulation is really, you know, it's cool, mm-hmm. but it isn't, it isn't like, it isn't reading the horoscope. Like it's not going to tell you the future. Um, and so the degree to which like you can manipulate a Monte Carlo simulation or like it ultimately boils down to a series of judgment calls. How long am I going to live? Yeah. And, and what's my lifestyle going to look like? Yeah. And although we can predict some of that, we can't predict everything. And without the fiduciary obligation, it's too easy to bury fees in in different investing opportunities. Yeah. Um, and and again, if it isn't, I think for most of us, if it isn't simple, it's probably not a good decision. Right. And right. in their case, it was not simple and it was not good. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the Vanguard thing of people like why Vanguard? It's like because the fees. It's like the the point out the fees. It's like and the yep. fees are so easy to just get fee here, fee here, fee that you don't know about. Um, yeah, fees. Um, also, I should know this, but what's a Monte Carlo si- simulation? Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to butcher this because I'm not a finance person. Just roughly. So roughly, know. it's a it it takes the historical data of the market, and you can provide inputs, and it will simulate the performance of an investment. Got it. So attempting to predict the future, which none of us can do, but it's a great idea on paper. Okay. Um, my father-in-law, Ashley's dad loves a Monte Carlo simulation. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a, a humor running with our, we have the same uh, financial planner. And uh, he he says that he justified getting a larger um, video display in the office because David, my father-in-law, kept asking for money to see the fine print of the Monte Carlo simulation. So um, <laughs> yeah, so he's really a student of a Monte Carlo simulation. <laughs> that is amazing. All right, and we don't have time to talk about it today, but the real estate, actually, I was just saying to Nicole yesterday, I was like, who do we know that has rental properties because we need to do a real estate episode? Um, we did one, but I, we need to do another one. So I don't know if you're the right person to come back for that, but that's I'd, a whole... <laughs> well, I'd be happy to join a chorus of people. We're, we're, I think what makes it work for us is we're in this unique real estate market that is not super costly. It's not New York City. Yeah. It's not LA. It's, but um, 2008, so you know the worst real estate performance of our lifetime... Uh, our market was flat, no appreciation, but no negative value. Yeah. Um, so we've, we kind of very much like my foray into themed entertainment, we kind of stumbled into it. Ashley had a property when we got married and we decided to, well, let's try it for a year. Let's see if, if renting the property will work. And one year went by and two years went by. And we've since, we have uh, two couples that we're friends with. They're both a real estate agents. And so we've, they had some holdings, we had some holdings, we've combined those all together. So we now have a mixture of long-term rentals and some like Airbnb short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're learning some lessons about the differences between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, we're, we're that, like very much on the beginning of that journey, yeah. but it's fun. No, but I think it's, it's good because like two years ago at LDI, the presentation was about multiple streams of income and how like, that's just a given for anybody. Yeah, revenue diversity. Anybody yeah. under 40, it's yes. like, you just know, like you have to. So uh, if you're listening, we just talked a bunch about real estate and that's over and it was on the Patreon. absolutely fantastic. It yeah. was absolutely fantastic. And it's over on the Patreon outtakes. Um, and so if there's anybody listening who either it's either in your line of work, going to be in your line of work or wants to basically do what you do, um, lighting attractions, things like that, um, and maybe wants to start building a team and start building their own company or their own LLC, LLC what is like one piece of financial advice that you could give them? As they, as they start this? 
First of all, if you want to work in themed attraction and you like doing lighting, you should find me on the socials or call me or because we may really want you to be involved in our team. Um, I've only ever bootstrapped companies. I've never had outside money. So Richard Kiyosaki, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, the cash flow quadrant, like understanding cash flow, I think is really important. Cash flow really matters more than account balances. That like understanding the cash flow thing, I think is really important. Or if you're going to freelance, understanding that when money shows up, not just how much you make is is equally important. Career advice. I have always been been surprised at the degree to which relationships are the key to work opportunity. They're the key to being able to, if you're in over your head on a project and you need help, to choose to treat people the way they, that you would like to be treated, to treat people well, to go the extra mile, to stay an extra day on a project, even if you can't bill for it. But it's what the project really needs. Every time I've made that decision or I've, I've kind of deployed that set of values, I've never, because it's been the right thing to do, but I've never been disappointed in the return on that decision. Relationships, I think, make the world go around and they're more valuable than any financial tool. So if you want, you know, if you want to stay employed, be nice to people, do good work. Then if the project needs a little extra and you can afford to pick up the hotel for one more night, then then do it because that's the right thing. And ensuring the success of the project will never negatively affect your career. Okay, I actually really love that you say that because I think because we have freelancers on the show, so many times people say, oh, don't work more than you need to. Like, you're, you know, you're not getting paid enough. So like, don't kill yourself. Don't stay overnight. Don't do this. But what you just said, which is if you can give a little extra and you're able to to make sure things go smoothly or something... I think that's wildly important. Well, so think about playing the tape out. So if I'm doing one project for one client and it's a one and done, that's great. And yeah, if I if I spend an extra $1,000 on that project between lodging and travel or whatever, sure, I lost $1,000 on that project. However, what I find is the, the more common story is I did one project and then because I did a good job on that project, I got a phone call about another project. And over the course of 20 years, that client is a million dollars worth of work. Mm-hmm. So would you trade a $1,000 donation, you know, a $1,000 discount on your price to get 20 years of work? I would, I'll take that deal every time. Yeah. I always feel good when I do it. Because yeah. it's like, I don't know that the next 19 years are going to be involved me working with this person. But you know what? I know I did the right thing. I know I did a good thing. I know I did something that nobody else in the world could have done for them. And I just did it. Which, while I don't, you know, exist on feelings alone, but I will say it like makes me feel like, because we're so busy. So like, yes, Nicole and I donate money to charities and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, we don't volunteer anywhere. And that's always something I felt guilty about. Like, I mean, sure, we'll do maybe an entertainment volunteer thing sure. here. But like... I don't give of my time back because my time is so valuable. And so sometimes when I do something like that, I think it fills that emotional life. There's a pay it forward yeah. kind of thing. That, <laughs> yes, I agree. Okay. All right. So just for fun, you don't have to have a question, an answer here, but is there a question that you want to ask me? I would love to know, would you tell a designer uh, starting their career, should they, should they go to New York and give it a try or not? Well, that, that is an easy answer. Okay. Ab- absolutely. Hundred percent, absolutely, hundred thousand. Like where I thought you were going with that, I was going to say, well, you have to know what you want in the end. But no, you know, Nicole and I, we think that travel is very important, and one of the reasons we think that is like, yeah, it's cool to see the Eiffel Tower, but what's more important is to see French people in the airport and French people on the street and French people with their kids. Yeah, to live to live for a week as a French person. Yeah, and and they think differently. They speak differently. They, you know, same thing for Asia or South America, anywhere. What's so important is different experiences. Mm-hmm. I can't explain how it all works, but going to a big city, you know, cutting your teeth on something like that, will it be easy? Maybe. I mean, I actually do think for freelancers, it is often easy because, again, you alluded to like, we're used to the cash flow situation. Mm-hmm. We're used to going gig mm-hmm. to gig. So if anybody can do it, do it. And then also when you're young, when you're untied down to, uh, relationship or anything like that absolutely go and also i think like go on the cruise ship i always avoided the cruise ship because i was always in a relationship and i was like i don't want to go away for so i never did it but i see people that do and i think if yeah if if you're single (laughs) take advantage of the the time yeah yeah 
But if for no other reason, then you're going to learn a whole different skill set. You're going to learn how a whole different place operates. And I know we had Buse Bickley, who's a prop supervisor, and he was saying, you know, props is actually a very city-specific thing because you need to know how the loading dock works. You need to know the parking rules. And that's very specific to a place. But everywhere else, it's like lighting is the same and different in all places. Mm -hmm. And it's the people and the way they interact and the city and that is going to be different that you don't even realize is different. If I go light a show in Orlando versus doing it in New York, I'm doing it the exact same way. But the exposure to, yeah. But it's all those extra things that I now know. My mom, as she gets older, she's not shy, afraid to say like, I'm going to die soon. She loves like talking like that. And so one of the things she's always said is she's like, you know, I'm in this room of 40 year olds and I'm 70 and I know so much more than them. And she's like, and it's not because I'm smarter. It's just I've lived longer and I've experienced more things. And I think it's that same idea of you're getting experiences that you don't even know you have. Because it's like when you go out of the lighting world and you say, you make a joke about 512 or, you know, DMX or something. Everybody knows that joke. Until you make that joke in a room full of people that have no idea what you're talking about. And then that's when you realize, oh, Oh, I know a lot. I live on this little island. Yeah. Yeah. I live on this little island and I know things that other people don't. And it's not because I'm smarter. It's just I've had different experiences than all of them. So anyway, I'm rambling now, but absolutely 100 percent, 100 percent, 10 out of 10 times do that. okay but like you can be successful anywhere doesn't matter where your location is and you can get on an airplane anyway i mean the way the way we met was talking about the springfield missouri airport yeah of, of all of the connections in the meta world to connect <laughs> over springfield's airport is very interesting but in a way it's like the algorithms are working right because yeah. there it was i was in springfield and i do lighting you travel through springfield and you do lighting not many people do that yeah i i think we're maybe the only two there might be like one more that we haven't met yet yeah if you're that third person yeah we would love to have you on on an episode (laughs) oh my gosh any springfield based lighting designers should reach out immediately ridiculous ridiculous there are none none. (laughs) (laughs) um okay so one last question before i let you go which is um and thank you and thank you ashley for taking this so long i realize we've taken over in an hour now and I meant to only do it for like half an hour. No, this is no, this is great. This is part of the fun of being in New York. So, <laughs> um, so last question, which is where can people connect with you if you want them to, and who do you want connecting with you? I'll connect with anybody, as evidenced by all folks who do lighting, who travel through the Springfield Airport. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Matt E. Cooper, Spark Lighting, SPRK Lighting is on Instagram as well. But yeah, LinkedIn. Um, I'm also Matt, M-A-T-T, at Spark, S-P-R-K, lighting.com. So you can just old school email like us, you know, established professionals use. Um, That's also a great way to get in touch with me. Um, All right, Matt and Ashley, thank you so much for on your vacation, stopping by and talking on this podcast. Like, that's amazing. This was so much fun. So thanks for having me on. That's it for this week's episode. Remember, if you want to access the outtakes, those are over at patreon.com slash artistic finance. My takeaways are that knowing about business is a way to be successful in the entertainment industry. Also, passion. Seeing how excited Matt is to discuss this topic is pretty fantastic. If we didn't mention it on the show, Matt was here in New York on vacation. He and his spouse, Ashley, took four hours out of their time to meet up and record this episode. Matt, thank you for doing that. And my final takeaway was getting a CPA who is also a certified financial planner. It's important that your financial plan is a whole plan to make sure that all the pieces are working together. So what did you think? Did you enjoy this interview? Connect with either of us on LinkedIn, or you can email artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't want to email, but you want to support the show, please become a patron. You'll help me continue to have these interviews that are allowing you, yes, you, to be empowered to discuss finances without worrying what others in the industry will think. So if you approve of what we're doing, help keep us moving forward at patreon.com slash artisticfinance and thank you in advance. There are a couple other ways to get involved. One is by signing up for our email newsletter. You can do that on our website, artisticfinance.com, or just email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and say you want signed up for the newsletter. 
Also, our book club meeting is January 29th at 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 p.m. New York time, and 5 p.m. London time. We're reading A Cat's Guide to Money, and exciting announcement about that. We actually have Lillian, the author of the book, attending our meetup. So if you want to participate in that, make sure to get a copy of that book. It's $7 to buy directly from the author on their website. I'll have a link for that in the show notes. But get reading the book. It's a big one. It's not huge, but it will take you a little bit of time. And in order to get the Zoom link to attend that book club meetup, uh, sign up again on our website to get the book club newsletter or email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and specify that you want to be on the emails for the book club. All right, that's all the announcements I have for today. I want to say uh, thank you from our soon-to-be mother and producer, Nicole. She appreciates all of you listening, and soon-to-be father, me, appreciates it as well. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.